All right, now take your Bibles and turn back to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Thank you for reading that, Bruce. I love that passage. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. And I'm excited uh, that we are going to re-engage in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, the series has been entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. And so the whole thinking behind it is, man, we're looking and evaluating and examining the early church. And, and the early church were like the first witnesses for Jesus Christ in, a, in an incredible way to the world. And, and we're all seeking to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Those who are following Christ, we want to be witnesses. And so we've been sort of getting our marching orders through this series uh, learning the truth and learning the, 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 how the church functioned and, and how it formed and functioned and served Christ and all of those things. And it's just been, uh, it's been an incredible, incredible thing, I believe, uh, to study the Word of God in the way that we have. And we've actually been in Acts for, I don't know, over a year, and we're probably going to be in it for another year because I am the sandbag pastor. You know, I just take take my time and creep through it, and, uh, and I think it's good for us that we just creep through the Word of God and marinate in it. But uh, I'm going to do a little bit of, of recapping to bring everyone up to speed this morning, and then we'll push through verse 8 of chapter 10. So we're going to be looking at one, uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 8, and like I said, we're going to do a little bit of recapping. We have to because it's been five weeks since we've really engaged this uh, series. I will read our main text those verses that I just mentioned, pray, and then we're going to examine this text in like blocks. We're going to look at, again, the background. That'll be part of the reflecting back on it. We're going to look at Cornelius again to some degree. We're going to look at Cornelius's vision. We're going to look at the angel's response, uh, the angel's instructions, Cornelius's response, and then Cornelius's instructions. And that's sort of how these Eight verses are laid out and illustrated in their narrative form. And so those are the things that we're going to be looking at. I'll be calling out for those things as, as we go. I'm not going to do things the way that I normally do where I read a verse and call it out because it's really, really challenging. Or read a verse and then, and then try to dissect each verse because this is one lump sum narrative and it's hard to break it up into verses. So it really needs to be broken up into paragraphs. So you guys ready? You feeling good? All right. Praise the Lord. I'm going to read... Uh, 10, 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... Verse 4, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Yopa, that's how it's pronounced, Yopa, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. Last verse, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Yopa. Father, this is an amazing passage of scripture and how easy it would be for us to be distracted. How easy it would be for me to be distracted in this moment of teaching and just to miss out on the richness of your word to miss out on the life-giving 
life-giving, life-cultivating, life-changing word and principles and truth that are found in this particular text, God. May we not be distracted by whatever it is, the cares of this world, our doubts, our disbelief, uh, concern, tradition, whatever those things may be, Lord, our preferences, and even our theology, which is intended for good, can get in the way. Lord, open our hearts and minds to you this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would impress your truth upon each one of us, that we would be changed and come to know you and live for you, God, which is the only life that's worth living. We lift all of these requests and petitions up to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, attend your word. Without your power, without your moving, without your application, it falls on deaf ears. Have your way, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's cover the background a little bit. It'll be the first block we go into, the background. Our text, as you've heard me say in the prior weeks, many, many weeks ago actually, our text marks the beginning or the turning point in the redemptive plan of God. This particular text does. Like a literal turning point in the redemptive plan of God. God had planned in eternity past to save for himself a group of people comprised of folks from every tribe and tongue. We see that so clearly in Revelation 7, 9. The first nine chapters of Acts, of the book of Acts, the book that we've been studying, document the redemption of Jews and Hellenists, which were half-Jews. They were like Gentiles who converted over to Judaism, uh, who were influenced by Greek culture. And so the first nine chapters really document like the birth of the church and and then, the, and then the way that God began to really, in the world, redeem Jews and Hellenists. Nine first nine chapters cover that. And then um, in our chapter, chapter 10, we see a turning point where God begins to redeem Gentiles or non-Jewish people, people like us. Uh, there might be a person of Jewish descent here today, and glory to God for that. But for the most part, we're all Gentiles. We're all like Greeks. We have no concept of Jewish culture or any of those things, we're not Jewish. And so in 10 we see a turning point where God begins to bring the gospel to non-Jewish people, have nothing to do with the Jewish people whatsoever. And this redemptive shift, this shift in direction, really began with a man named Cornelius. And that's just, that's a reality and that's a truth here in Scripture. And that always has just blown my mind, how God begins with like a seed, you know, God is supernatural and he's amazing and unbelievable and awe-inspiring and awesome in the true sense. Not like we call pizza awesome or a parking spot closer to the store awesome or any of those things. He is truly awesome and, and he can do whatever he desires to do at any time. And he does do whatever he desires to do. But so often he begins massive things that change the world with one person, with one life that's been changed. And in the book of Acts, we see this taking place. We see this miracle take place. He starts with a man named Cornelius. Just a man named Cornelius. Pretty amazing stuff, what we have before us here. And, and we don't want to make light of that narrative truth there, that this is that turning point 
moment in the church's history and in the history of the world. If you've ever wondered where it really all began with Gentiles and while there's billions of Christian Gentiles in the world, it started here in this narrative, in this storyline, at this historical point right here. And it began with a man named Cornelius. How amazing is that? Pretty, pretty insane. Now let's talk about Cornelius a little bit. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Cornelius was a high-ranking centurion who belonged to the Italian cohort, which was a special detachment that had been stationed at Caesarea. Uh, there was a Roman governor that lived in Caesarea. That was kind of his headquarters. And this Italian cohort was assigned to protecting him and to protecting the interests of Rome in that particular area. So this guy was a high-ranking centurion and even higher because he was a part of the Italian cohort, not just the regular cohorts, if you will. And so he was the centurion, belonged to the Italian cohort, which was a special detachment in ancient Caesarea. Luke wrote that Cornelius was a devout person. Devout could be uh, translated as pious in Greek. He was a pious uh, or devout man who was known as a God-fearer. A God-fearer. There was actually a class of people who feared the God of Israel. Uh, there weren't Jewish that were called God-fearers. And so it's interesting. God-fearers are literally Gentiles, or who were. I don't know if they're still around, I suppose. Uh, they were Gentiles who were attracted by the Jewish faith who worship Israel's God, who attend synagogue services, because that's where they had their church services and worship services was in the synagogues, and who probably adhere, they, they do believe, scholars believe that God-fearers adhered to some of the Jewish laws, and we know there were a ton of them, not just the Ten Commandments, but other things. But the stipulation with God-fearers is that they had not been, they were Gentiles, they had not been circumcised they had not gone through that process of being circumcised and um, so what they don't do is follow all of the stipulations of the Torah it's like they have maybe a list of Jewish laws that they follow but they don't go through with the circumcision process and they don't follow some of the other laws and things like that so they're kind of like a wannabe Jew in a way but not wanting to really go any deeper or any farther. Maybe in their relationship to God they'd want to go deeper, but into the religion, no, they really weren't interested in that. So God-fearers were not considered by Jews to be part of the Jewish community. They weren't seen as brother Jews. They were not seen as part of the tribe of Israel, not grafted in or anything like that whatsoever. Baptism and circumcision were required for Gentiles to, and God-fearers, whoever, to fully transfer over, to become considered part of the nation of Israel, part of the covenant people. They had to go through those two additional things. Very interesting. Cornelius was, however, a very pious man. He was devout. He taught his household to fear God. He gave alms generously we see these in verse these things in verses one and two he gave alms generously and he prayed to israel's god continually and he even had an excellent rep reputation 
amongst the Jewish people, which is pretty amazing because the Jewish people hated Rome. They hated Rome. They hated centurions. They hated everything. I mean, Rome was the dominating, prevailing, you know, force and entity and empire over them. They were holding them in bondage very similar to what Egypt had done 1,000 or so, 1,500 years before. And so the Jews typically could not stand the Romans, hated them, despised them, and they hated their own Jewish people, their brothers and sisters, who supported Rome in any way or facet. And so they had this deep animosity, and yet, and yet they had a liking, they took a liking to Cornelius. He had a great reputation, as you will see down in verse 22 of our chapter. So it's kind of a fascinating thing that's going on with this guy. He's kind of a wannabe Jew in a way. The people like him. He serves the people. He raises his household. Well, he does all of these things. He's a very devout and pious man. How about Cornelius' vision? Cornelius' vision. Verses 3 and 4. One day, during the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m., Cornelius was praying, as was his custom. You may remember or recall me saying that the Jews had three particular hours that they prayed during, uh, during each day. They had a morning and an after, uh, a lunchtime hour, and then an afternoon hour. And the ninth hour was the late afternoon thing. It was the, what they would call evening prayer. It took place at three o'clock. And so Cornelius was literally praying during one of those Jewish hours of prayer it was his custom to do so while in prayer he saw a vision he saw a vision in the vision an angel of God approached him and called him by name now this frightened Cornelius as we see in the narrative it really frightened him Cornelius had never seen anything like this before he had never seen anything supernatural. He had never seen an angel before. He probably believed that it existed because the Old Testament, which was the book that he would have studied to some degree and listened to preach in the synagogue, said that there's angels and they do certain things and there's stories of angels and the angel of the Lord and then there's all these other angels, these servants of God. So he no doubt believed in angels, but he had never seen one before. He had never experienced anything supernatural. We must keep in mind that he is a Roman and Romans believed in a form they adopted a form of greek mythology and so they had all these crazy gods with snake heads and all this stuff and they believed in greek mythology a branch of that and they also worshiped the caesar as god their caesar caesar augustus you know caesar nero these guys these were godlike figures uh, an example of that today would be what's going on with north in north korea where they actually worship their leader as a god how tragic but that's this man's background. He has this Roman background. He came up through this Roman system and way of life and Roman religion. And so, you know, ultimately his gods were like these stick figures and stone figures and carvings and these images that were fashioned by men's hands. And so these gods, these false gods, whatever you want to call them, were mute and never spoke and never performed anything supernatural and Caesar never did anything supernatural, although there were a lot of tales that surrounded these Caesars that they could do certain things and stuff, but they were Hollywood. And so that was his background, his former religion. And if he's a devout Jew or a, a, a God-fearer, then that means he's probably still got some threads of that old Roman religion 
going through his veins and coursing through his veins. He still probably believes some of those things and maybe worships the God of Israel, but he also worships Zeus and, and who knows? And maybe he thinks the God of Israel is the God Zeus or whatever. And so that's his upbringing, that's his background. So when he saw an angel, a supernatural being, he experienced a supernatural moment, it frightened him because he had never, ever seen anything like that before. Now, I would probably roll the dice on the majority of us in here are probably believers and how many of us have seen something like that and we think well I'm a Christian and I know Jesus and, and if that happened I'd be like amen brother angel you know no I think that you would run for the hills right I, I mean that would be a frightening thing it would be something that b would blow our mind why because it's not you know it's supernatural it's miraculous these things don't happen very often and it's just not as common as some churches would make you believe and so it would blow our mind we would probably be like cornelius to some degree but he did subscribe to judaism to some degree he did pursue the god of israel to some degree he did do that and he may have had those threads of those things and it really rocked his world when he saw this angel and you know what's interesting about cornelius i believe his affection with the god of israel was perpetuated by a dissatisfaction in the religion that he was in you know as i said these gods that he worshiped were stone figures carved by hand and they were mute and they didn't speak or do anything miraculous or supernatural they didn't send a redeemer into the world to you know live a perfect life and to die on a cross and be slaughtered like an animal and be resurrected in the power of god for sinners which is the greatest miracle that's ever happened they didn't have anything like that in their religion no power no miracles just stone mute figures and i suspect that his interest in judaism because he no doubt had heard all of the stories the parting of the red sea and the deliverance of the israelites out of Egypt and all of these things. These were attractive things. His religion never had talked about any of those things. And yet so he was like, whoa, this God of Israel is a miracle-working, supernatural, all-powerful, almighty God who actually interacts with people and things of that nature. Mind-blowing thing. He wasn't getting any of that out of the old Roman religion or any other religion of his day. And so that may have been the lure towards Judaism. And, and like I said, he did subscribe to Judaism to some degree. He most certainly did. But we must not miss the truth that we see in Scripture here and the reality of who this person was. We must not miss the reality of the fact, the reality that he was still missing something. There was still something missing in his life. If there hadn't been something missing, he wouldn't have got a visit from an angel. He would have just kept plugging away and doing his thing in his half-hearted Judaism or his half-style Judaism. There was something missing. Although he was pious, although he was devout, Cornelius had yet to experience anything inwardly or outwardly supernatural. And when he received an angelic vision, it literally struck him with fear because he had never seen anything like this. His Roman religion couldn't deliver that. By no means. For the first time in his life, the realm of heaven had reached out to him and sent him a messenger. Now look at how he responded to the angel. Yes, he's stricken with fear. He's blown away. Look at how he responded. What did he say? He said, what is it? 
Lord? Cornelius' response was very similar to Saul's response when he saw Jesus in blinding glory on the Damascus Road. We studied that several chapters ago. Cornelius was fearful and bewildered just as Saul had been. Cornelius didn't know what to make of the vision or the figure standing in front of him. He asked, what is it? Which is the same as saying, what's going on here or what's happening? You could render the verse to say that. What is going on here? What is happening right now is what's spinning through his mind and what actually comes out of his mouth. He sees this vision. What is going on here? What is this? What is it? He's blown away. What is it? And then he said, Lord, which is put in the form of a question. And so the verse could be rendered, what's going on here? Is it you, Lord? Is it you, Lord? Or is this the Lord that has sent me this vision that is speaking to me? He's bewildered. He's fearful. He asks, what's going on here? And he says, Lord? Could this be the Lord? Have you come from the Lord? Have you been sent from the Lord? Kind of get the gist of it there. The use of Lord here also reflects Cornelius's willingness to obey instructions. The word in the Greek actually has like an inquisitive sort of nature to it. Like, Lord, what would you want me to do? Do you want me to do something? In the original, it has sort of that inquisitive aspect to it. And so there's a humility here in his response. There is a humility in his response. There is an inquisitiveness. There is a curiosity. And there is a desire to do whatever he's instructed to do. Now, once he recognized that he was speaking to an angel of God, he knew that he was about to be given instructions because angels often gave instructions, did they not? That is the job of the angel. The angels are sent as messengers of God. They give instructions. They give encouragements. They give directions. They give protection in these various things. And so once he discerned, man, I think I'm standing in front of an angel, he knew that he was about to get instructions and there was a willingness to follow those instructions, which is quite remarkable. His fear and his disposition, I mean, his disposition literally changed. He, was, he had a fearful disposition. He was scared out of his wits, and it changed. And he was like, Lord, this is, maybe this is the Lord that sent this being to me. And, and what does he desire? What will he ask me to do? And, and I want to obey. Now, what did the angel say to him? The angel's response, verse 4. And this is an, an amazing verse. I, I mean, I've messed with this verse almost all week. I just could not wrap my mind around it, and I'm going to explain why. It's a mesmerizing verse. It's an interesting verse. The angel replied simply, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. You know, Cornelius was living out the Jewish faith the best way he knew how, according to the knowledge that he had. He worshipped the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. He obeyed God's commands to teach his family and to fear the Lord. He obeyed God's commands to care for those in need. He obeyed God's commands to pray 
continually. We see all of that in verses 1 and 2. He did these things. It's really interesting. R.C. Sproul wrote a little commentary on what a memorial before God means. And this is his sort of rendition of what it means or explanation or theological viewpoint. He said, Jews who had access to the inner court of the temple brought in their sacrifices and smoke from the burnt offering as well as incense from the altar of incense, which is the altar of prayer, wafted into the air. The smoke lifted heavenward, symbolizing a sweet aroma to God. The angel was in effect saying to Cornelius, even though you are not a Jew, your prayers and sacrifices have been sweet to God, and God is recognizing you. Isn't that an interesting perspective on that? Essentially, that's what the angel is doing. In a way, the angel is affirming what he's been doing. And technically speaking, okay, he was an outcast from the Jewish culture. Even though the people liked him to some degree, they probably liked him because he was generous. But he wasn't considered a Jew, and no Jew would rightfully consider him to be a Jew or ever welcome him into the Jewish community. And so he was an outcast. And yet, he was as pious and devout as most Jews, if not more so. Uh, we learned five or six weeks ago that he was, before even knowing Christ, he was ten times the Christian that most Christian men are. I mean, he, he was a man who prayed every day, all day. He was a man who gave generously. He's ten times the Christian that I tend to be, unfortunately. Lord willing, help me. Interesting thing playing out here. So this was a way of recognizing Cornelius is what God was doing through the angel. Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. We need to be careful here, though, however. We need to be careful. We might be led to believe that Cornelius's good works are what caused God to do something good for him, which could lead us down the path of believing that God seeks to save those who first choose him, who seek to serve him, to do good things and nice things for him and for others. But before running headlong down the path of full-blown Arminianism, we must first be made aware of several biblical truths. Number one, the Bible teaches. Okay, I didn't make these things up. So what the Bible teaches so clearly, and there is some mystery in Scripture, but the Bible teaches these things just very poignantly. They're very black and white. Number one, the Bible teaches that God predestined. He predestined to save sinners in eternity past. Based upon their choice of him in the future? No. Based upon the counsel of his own will. Romans 8.30 and Ephesians 1.11. God chose to save sinners in eternity past. It was his sovereign choice according to the counsel of his own will. Not affected by anything outside of him. Bible teaches it very clearly. You can take issue with it, but you're just taking issue with the word of God. And that's okay. God may enlighten us all. I took issue with it for years. Number two, the Bible teaches that salvation is an act of God alone. It's an act of God alone, meaning that man can't do anything about it. It is an act of God alone. Matthew 19, 26. You remember the apostles or the disciples at that point asked Jesus, then who can be saved? And he said, well, with man, it's impossible. They can't do anything to save themselves. They've got nothing. Even this rich man that went away saddened, had nothing. His wealth couldn't buy it. He couldn't do anything to cultivate the faith or the salvation. Matthew 19, 26. The Bible teaches that salvation comes by 
grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works, so that no man may boast. We just heard that read, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. Before the Bible teaches that natural man is dead in sin, that all men are born dead in sin, in a spiritual sense. They are necros, they are dead before God. There is no spiritual life in them, there is no faith, there is no light, there is no spark, there is nothing in them that will incline them towards God. They are dead, Ephesians 2.1. Number five, the Bible teaches that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God, Romans 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh, those who have not been born of the Spirit through the supernatural work of God, through the gospel applied by the Holy Spirit, they cannot please God no matter what they do. They're still in flesh and in sin. They are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Number six, the Bible teaches that, <clears throat> the Bible teaches that we can love God and that we can love others. Why? Because God first loved us. 1 John 4.19 These passages are meant to make it crystal clear that God initiates salvation, not people. If people are left to themselves, they will either do nothing about their spiritual life or they will wander down religious paths that lead to destruction. It's really plain and simple. That is the plight of humanity. That was my plight for two-thirds of my life. Many of you can testify that that was your plight. That's where you were. You were lost in your sin on the broad road to destruction. God must, according to Scripture, intervene. And that is precisely what God did with Cornelius. That is precisely what he did with Cornelius. He intervened by sending him an angel to give him instructions to fetch Peter the preacher who would come and preach the gospel so that he and his household could be saved. Now, this is where it gets really, really interesting. It is true, we cannot reject what scripture teaches in this text, it is true that God considered Cornelius' prayers and acts of charity as a memorial to him. I can't take my theological position and, and demolish that plainly said statement in Scripture. It is right there, and I'm not going to attempt to do that. We see it. Somehow God considered what this man was doing, he considered it to be a memorial to him. And I believe the reason why God did this, the reason why he saw what Cornelius was doing uh, as a memorial to him was because Cornelius offered these things up by faith. He offered these things up by faith. Now the Bible says that whatever is offered up apart from faith reeks like, filthy, like a filthy garment, Isaiah 64, 6. But Cornelius, however, believed in Israel's God to the best of his knowledge and he was sincere but he was ignorant of the true nature of God. He did not know or understand that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But because of his 
faith, that small measure of faith that he had in the God of Israel, God still called his prayers and acts of charity a sweet aroma. He still considered those things to be a sweet aroma, but we must understand that there was nothing salvific about his works. Nothing. Hence the reason why the angel was sent to him so that he could hear the gospel. Very interesting stuff. So God considered these things to be a sweet aroma to some degree. Now what's interesting is that Jesus never rebuked his fellow Jews for believing in the God of Abraham and Moses. You'll never see him do that in scripture. He never rebuked his countrymen, his people, never rebuked them for following and and loving the God of those two main characters, Abraham and Moses. He never did. But he did rebuke them for rejecting the very one to whom Abraham and Moses pointed, which was himself. Which was himself. We see that so clearly in John 5, 37 to 47 and John 8, 39 to 59. So God sent an angel to Cornelius not to rebuke him for rejecting Jesus as so many Jews had done. He did not send him to rebuke him for rejecting Jesus because Cornelius did not know who Jesus was. For whatever reason, Cornelius had never heard of Jesus. Or if he had, it was just a faint shadow or a faint explanation. He had no idea about who Jesus was. He had no idea. He was completely ignorant of the Lord. He was ignorant. And God sent an angel then to what? To encourage him. God has seen what you've been doing. He sees the sincerity of your heart. And he considers what you've been doing to be a sweet aroma. So he encourages him. But more importantly, the angel came to enlighten him to the truth of the Godhead and the gospel through Peter's preaching. In John 15, 5, God declared one of the most merciful and gracious statements in all of the Bible and in all of literature. It reads, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Ultimately, Cornelius was plugging away in a religion that could not deliver him. His piety and his works could not save him. His parenting skills, almsgiving, and persistent prayer life produced nothing more than a sweet aroma. The fact is, this man needed Jesus, just as we all do. He needed Jesus just as we all do. And God, who is rich in mercy and bountiful in grace, was about to introduce him and his household. What an extended measure of grace. He was about to introduce him to who? The way and the truth and the life, Jesus Christ. That is what God is setting to do. That is what the stage is set for. How about the angel's instructions? We see those in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, the angel instructed Cornelius to send men to the coastal city of Joppa to bring Peter back to Caesarea. That's where Cornelius lived. Today, Joppa, just a little brief geographical lesson. Today, Joppa is called Jaffa. And it is situated about 50 miles south of Caesarea. The modern city of Tel Aviv was founded on the outskirts of Jaffa in 1909 and today it encompasses the ancient city. 
Peter was down in Yopa in this place 40, 50 miles south. What was he doing down there? Well, we learned a little while ago, probably a month ago, that he was building up the church down there and encouraging the Christians. And he even worked a miracle uh, with a person. It was really an amazing thing that we studied. I think it was Tabitha. But he was down there supporting the Christians and staying in the area. This was like his first real missional journey. For the most part, he spent all of his time doing ministry in Jerusalem. And then he left and went into this particular place, Yopa, and kind of toured up and down the coast there, supporting the church and building up the church. Uh, we need Christians to do those sorts of things in those distant communities. And, and that's what he was doing. Luke tells us that uh, what else does he say? He says that he was down staying in Yopa uh, with a man named Simon. It's funny that Peter is also Simon and Simon Peter, and then you got another Simon, and it's their, their names. Gosh, the Jewish people just kept kind of using the same names over and over. Jesus called Simon, he called him Simon, he called him Peter, and he even called him Simon Peter sometimes. But it's the same guy. But Simon Peter, or Peter, was actually staying with a guy named Simon down in that coastal town. Luke tells us that Simon was a tanner in chapter 9, verse 43, and then in our text, chapter 10, verse 7. This is really interesting. Is Luke trying to communicate or convey something of importance to us here through this repetition, through telling us he's a tanner twice within a couple of paragraphs? Absolutely. Tanners were skilled craftsmen who stripped dead animals of their skins and then prepared the skins to be sold in the marketplace. You know, they would make wine skins out of these things and stuff. They would carry their wine in them or make clothing and things like that, even use some of those skins for shields. They prepared the skins by cleaning them and then by tanning them out in the sun. And you had some blisterous sunlight over there. Tanners were despised in the first, uh, in first century Jewish society. Why? Because they dealt with the skins of dead animals. Tanning was considered an unclean occupation. And Simon would have been shunned by the local synagogue. Tanners were seen as unclean. You know, Jews were prohibited from, especially the really pious ones, man. They were not supposed to mess with dead animals or touch dead animals. It would defile them. And they literally looked at people who handled dead animals or, or you know, did perform burial service and things and handled dead bodies and stuff, man. It's like, man, once you touch a dead body, you're unclean. And they considered tanners to be unclean at all times. And so they distanced themselves from tanners. They stayed away from them just as they did away from lepers who were considered unclean. It was an unclean occupation. Simon would have been shunned by the local synagogue. And yet Peter, who is completely Jewish, chose to stay with Simon while in Yopa. This was a daring move. Peter knew that staying with a tanner would make him unclean amongst his fellow Jews and maybe even cause them to rebuke and ridicule him. But Peter went and stayed with Simon anyways. Helping the church in Yopa and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ very plainly were more important to Peter than upholding certain traditions or pleasing religious people. Jesus ditched tradition and went into forbidden places like Samaria, Tyre, Sidon, and the Decapolis. He ditched tradition and associated with people that were considered unclean like tax collectors, lepers, harlots, and Gentiles. And the religious leaders criticized him for it. They called him a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of sinners. 
Peter was in many ways being like Jesus when he stayed with Simon the Tanner. He had the heart and mind of Christ. His love for people exceeded his love for traditions, his love for comfort, and his love for ease of life. The great question to us is, does our love for people exceed our love for tradition, comfort, and ease of life? Are we willing to go as Christ's messengers, as Christ's ambassadors into forbidden places? Are we willing to associate with the unclean? I've often pondered, would I, and you would think that I would, would I be able to recognize Jesus if he came right now into this culture and began to do ministry and live his life here amongst us? Would I be able to recognize him? And part of me says, oh, are you kidding me? He's my Lord and Savior, of course. The reality is probably not, because he would be in places that I will not go into. He would associate with people that I find very difficult to associate with. Their practices, their lives, their beliefs, their politics. It's a sobering thought. We are so quick because we love Jesus and are following him to, to say that we would just follow him to the ends of the earth and, and do all that we could and even die for him. And yet we deny him three times daily. Would we recognize him? Because do you know where he would go into? He would go into those places that we have been taught are sinful and deadly and a detriment to our faith and that we should avoid at all costs. He would be in those places. He would be. And he would be associating with people that we have either written off or that we are just too high and mighty to associate with. Now, not all of us are like that, but that is certainly the tendency. I don't know about you, but I have a way higher tendency to be a Pharisee than I do to be liberal or whatever the other side would be. I tend to be a Pharisee. It's a sobering thought. God has blessed us with a principal truth here through Peter's example in that he was willing to cast aside tradition, cast aside the criticisms of religious people and to associate with someone who probably loved Jesus, but you know, most religious people wouldn't even, even give him the time of day or consider him to be a follower because of his principal practices and the things that he did. But you know what, Peter, his love for God, his love for for people was higher and greater at this particular moment than his love for tradition or being a people pleaser. Is that who we are? Let me tell you something. If we don't become that, we will not put a dent in this city. We will not. Have you seen what's going on in this city? Does it not break and shatter your heart with the meth abuse, the prostitution, the high school dropout rate, the foreclosure rate? We are deemed the worst city in this nation to live in. And I think one of the reasons why is because we are not daring enough, we are not bold enough as a church to step into those places and to speak the truth and love of God. That's who we need to be. That's who Jesus was and is. That's who Peter was and so many others. It's a great principle truth for us. Now, isn't it also interesting that the angel knew exactly where Peter was staying. Did you notice that? In verse 6, the angel told, told Cornelius to send men to Simon the Tanner's house to fetch Peter. How did the angel know where Peter was staying? Are angels omniscient? Do they know all things? 
No, 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 they are learners just like us. But God is omniscient and he knows all things. And angels are his messengers. God tells angels where to go, who to see, and what to say. And they obey him. Interesting little truth there. How about Cornelius' response? Verse 7. In verse 7 we notice that after the angel left Cornelius, he called for two servants and one devout soldier to come to him for instruction. This shows that Cornelius was willing to obey the angel's instructions, which meant that he was willing to obey God because he believed God had sent him the message through the angel. Notice how the angel gave Cornelius almost no details about Peter or the purpose for purposes behind or for retrieving him. In verse 22, it says that they uh, were to hear what Peter had said. So we have some purpose for retrieving Peter. It was to listen to what he had to say. But for the most part, there's almost no direction. I mean, there's almost no background or any of those things. There's not much more than that. Just go get this guy and listen to what he has to say. It's pretty interesting. Listen again to how minimalistic the angel's instructions were. What did he say to him? Send men to get, send men, send some men down to Yopa to get Peter, who is staying at Simon the Tanner's house in Yopa. And then he also said, bring him back to listen to his words. That's it. That's all the angels said. There's no background information. There's no detailed description of Peter and no details about what Peter would say. He didn't even say, go down and listen to him. He's going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to you so you guys can get saved and experience the abundant life that God has for sinners and blah, 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 blah. He doesn't give him any of that. Just go down and get this guy. This guy has no idea who this dude is he's going to get. He has no idea who he is. Just put yourself in Cornelius' shoes right now. Would you go with such minimal information? Are you kidding me? I am an information hog. I am a researcher. That's why my sermons are so dang long and only cover a couple of pieces of text. I would say, Angel, uh, can you come back? And, who is Peter? Is he safe? What kind of dude is this man? You know, I, I would be seeking after more information, and, and I, would be, I, I would be experiencing trepidation and nerves, and my goodness, God often tells me to do certain things and stuff through his word, or sometimes I'm praying, and he, and he, and he commands for me to do something that, that lines up with his word, and boy, I'm always asking God more questions, the who, what, where, and why. Well, we don't see any of that with Cornelius. Cornelius didn't ponder, didn't hesitate, didn't go unroll the Torah and start looking for things and, and start, and he didn't go around to the diviners in his community and the soothsayers and say, you know, I got this angelic vision. I'm trying to discern what it means. Do you have Cleo's phone number? Hello, Cleo? Oh, call me now. You know, he, he didn't do any of that stuff. What did he do? He obeyed at once. He obeyed at once. Notice how Cornelius, too, sent for two servants and what else? A devout soldier. Is there anything significant about Cornelius' choice of men to send? Absolutely. Cornelius may have chosen a soldier for the two to three, three day journey because it was often dangerous to travel in those days. I mean, it makes sense. You know, you're going down on this mission and, and you've got a goal and you've got to go retrieve this guy and it 
it makes sense to send some beefcake down there with a missile launcher, you know, I blow them to pieces, you know, right? I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, there were bandits and thieves and bloodthirsty pirate kind of dudes along the highways hiding in the cleft of rocks and stuff. And when travelers would travel, especially when they're going to Jerusalem for Passover and those feasts, man, they would hide and they would prey on people. They would prey on travelers. Jesus told a story about the Good Samaritan. We don't know if that was a truthful story, but I can tell you what, that stuff happened all the time. People got beaten within an inch of their life and had their stuff ripped off. And so it totally makes sense that he would send a soldier in terms of, you know, ensuring that, that servants or whatever would be protected, that Peter would be protected as they come back and that they could fight off any bad guys and do some Jet Li, you know, or whatever. It makes sense. It makes sense. But also take notice to what Luke wrote. He wrote that the soldier was devout. There's the key. This isn't an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and filming here. It wasn't because he was sending the soldier because he was a man of great might. He was sending him because he was devout, which means that he had the same beliefs and devotion as Cornelius. Cornelius may have felt, and I believe he did, that it was necessary to send a person of faith along the journey because the journey had a spiritual element to it. Doesn't that make sense? Why would any person of faith send someone who does not share their faith to do God's bidding. <laughs> There's a principal truth here for us as well. The people of God need to do the ministry of God. The ministry of God should not be subbed out to people who do not love God. It should not be subbed out to non-believers. And I don't mean to be offensive at all. In the 19th century in England, during the peak of Victorianism, many church leaders desired to take their worship services to a whole new level, driven by a desire for excellence and perfection and, and even some competitive thing going on there. They literally, church leaders went out and they combed all the cities and the towns and, and looked for the most talented composers and musicians and choirs and singers. Most of the talent they found was not church talent the next thing you know non-believers were planning and leading worship services at churches now this drove men like charles spurgeon and jc ryle absolutely nuts in fact spurgeon wrote several essays on the matter and called it the great downgrade controversy and it wasn't just that they were going out and seeking this perfection. It was really an attack. What he wrote was a response to Victorianism. And what Victorian, Victorianism basically said was all things got to be beautiful and perfect and amazing and astounding and visually appeasing and, and pleasing. And, and we've got to seek out excellence in all these things. And, and that's really what it was. And you've probably seen Victorian homes and how ornate and beautiful they can be. I, I love the architecture of Victorianism. But philosophically, it was a, a deadly, deadly system of belief. And it had infiltrated the church uh, and still does. Still does. These kinds of men, Spurgeon and Ryle and other guys, it drove them nuts. They believed that non-believers, they believed that non-believers belonged in the pews, not on the stage. And rightfully so. Now, this is a fairly common practice in the church today. You might be thinking, oh, no, that doesn't happen. Certainly it does. I remember reading about a pastor who 
questioned a worship pastor about allowing a a non-believer to play in the band on Sundays. The pastor said to the worship pastor, why do you have a non-believer? We know who this guy is. Why do you have a non-believer on stage leading the people of God in worship? The worship pastor replied, he's incredibly talented. I mean, nobody can play guitar like this guy. It's like, he's like Randy Rhodes up there. And literally, (laughs) man, are you kidding me? He's like Jakey Lee. He's like Eddie Van Halen. This guy shreds. He's bad. He is amazingly talented, super, super talented. And he said, we're also trying to evangelize him while he practices and plays with us. He's incredibly talented and we're evangelizing him while he practices and plays with us. The questioning pastor said, replied, that may be true. I don't doubt his skill and ability. may be true. It may be true that you're trying to evangelize him and and glory to God for that. But God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And that guy doesn't know the truth. How can he worship God and lead others to worship God if he does not know the truth. The worship pastor replied, I don't know how he can do that. I guess he can't, but does it really matter? He's just playing a guitar. The questioning pastor replied, I'm pretty sure it matters to God. I'm pretty sure it matters to your congregation. Do they know about his unbelief? And the worship pastor replied, no, and don't tell them. All in the name of talent, perfection, Victorianism. Is it the pursuit of excellence that drives us to do these things at times? Is it a guilt that God demands such a high level of perfection that it just can't be achieved within his own church and that we have to try to hire? And not to mention those guys and gals that were being uh, chosen to do worship and stuff during the 19th century, they were paid huge salaries to lead. But is it because we believe God demands such from us that if we can't find the talent, we've got to hire and pay it or we've got to go out to the world and get it and retrieve it and bring it in and then try to evangelize that talent while we're doing it? What is it that drives us to do that? Our church is overly competitive with one another. I've seen that firsthand. One church does this, and then there's a church down the street that does it because they did it. Oh, they got those jumbotrons. We better get those. Oh, they got moving headlighting. We better get those. Oh, man, they've got Eddie Van Halen on stage. We better get Randy Rhodes. What is going on here? Are we trying to worship? Are we desiring to worship God or compete with one another? We're acting like a bunch of consumers is what we're acting like. Or we're acting like church leaders are acting like storefronts and you guys are the consumers and we're trying to sell you a product. I'll say this as plainly as I can. The ministry of God should be done by the people of God for the people of God and for the good of the community and most importantly to the glory of God, period. As long as I am, and I want to say this as sensitively as I can because I am so prone to error, but I want to be decisive about this. As long as I'm the pastor of this church, that's not going to happen. We're not going to just 
do things because others do it or we feel compelled to do it or we need to be competitive or any of that. As a pastor, as a congregation, we have a ministry to one another and to a lost world. The best thing that we could do for a lost world is to teach them about Jesus Christ. Not invite them into some of these intimate circles where we handle the very means of grace that God has given us and we put people in there that have no concept of that and what they need to do is first learn about those things and, and submit their life to Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be doing. That's the message. That's what, that's what saves the world is preaching the gospel and inviting non-believers to believe, not to play. It's so critical that we get these things. Isn't it amazing that that principle truth is right in that little text did he send Arnold Schwarzenegger down there to protect him or did he send him because he was a devout man because he understood to the best of his knowledge the things of God and that was a spiritual mission of extraordinary importance, probably the most important mission of Cornelius' life. It was given to him by a supernatural angel. What did he say in his mind? I'm not going to screw this up. I'm going to send someone who believes, believes what I believe to some degree at least to handle this and that is the principal truth the people of God need to do the ministry of God for the people of God and for the good and benefit and salvation of our community amen can I get an amen on that let's do that let's do that and let's rebuke one another when we're when we get off track and let's correct one another when we get off track do you have any idea what kind of temptation I deal with every week and I don't want to sob on your shoulder but as a pastor and looking at all that's going on and our attendance is up and down all the time the satan is always whispering in my ear come up with some gimmick phil and i'm like i rebuke you in the name of jesus christ my gimmick is the word of god oh i'm pointing up i should be pointing down what the heck was i doing i rebuke you and jesus is like it's me talking to you what are you talking about i rebuke you i rebuke you in the name of jesus every day People come and go to this church. We just had a family that had been with us for three months, and they left. The first thing that happens is I say, why? What did I do? What could I have done to keep them? What should I do? What should I add to help lock them in? The temptation is so great to mold and fashion this thing into the shiny Ferrari that draws people from all corners of the world. And what we need to do is preach the word and love each other deeply. Amen? <sighs> so he chose for him two servants and a devout man, a man of faith, to what? Go down and fulfill the mission that God gave him through the angel. Now let's look at quickly Cornelius' instructions, verse 8. Notice in verse 8 how Cornelius, it says he related everything to his servants and the devout soldier. Basically, he told them about the vision. He told them what the angel said to him, and he gave these men all of the details. He basically said, while praying, I was visited by an angel of God, and he instructed me to send you to Yopa to retrieve Peter, who was staying with Simon the Tanner by the sea. Here's why you're going to get him. You need to bring him back so that he can speak to us. Well, Cornelius, what's he going to say? I have no idea. 
but God has shown that He's in this thing. He gave us the instructions, so I guarantee you it's going to be good. After explaining everything, it says that He sent them to Yopa. Next week, we will begin to look at how Peter received a vision and how it was meant to prepare him for this encounter with Cornelius and his household. Peter had some things that he had to deal with, and he had to get some instructions. At this point in the narrative, he has no idea what's coming. Cornelius gets a vision, then Peter gets one. They're affirming, and God threads it all together. It's amazing how God did it, and we're going to study that together, and I think it's going to be really good for us. I hope that you come back.